0: You are listening to American Songcatcher, tracing the roots of American music from its emigrated past to today's artists playing it forward. I'm folk songwriter Nicholas Edward Williams.
1: I'm going back That's one no
0: Known as the Minstrel of the Appalachians, Bascom Lamar Lensford was born into the Mecca of traditional Appalachian folk music, Madison County, North Carolina, in an area called Mars Hill in 1882. The county was split during the Civil War, and fittingly, his father was a Confederate veteran from eastern Tennessee, and his mother came from a musical unionist family nearby. His mother often sang religious and traditional ballads that she had learned from her family, full of fiddlers and several other instruments. And Bascom was one of seven children. And when he was very young, his father got a fiddle for Bascom and his brother Blackwell to learn on. They played songs from the music that their mother grew up on while she sang along. And by their teens, they were both accomplished players who often performed for neighbors and at school events. Around this time, Bascom took up the banjo, which would become his primary instrument, and began to perform at weddings and square dances. From a young age, Bascom was drawn to seek out songs from family, friends, and acquaintances, learning to sing and play them and add to his collection.
1: This banjo song is called The Last Gold Dollar, rather an elusive uh, banjo tune. Baskin played banjo in a style that was
0: native to Western North Carolina, which has a rhythmic upstroke brushing the strings, producing a similar sound to claw hammer banjo, which emphasizes the downstroke. He also played the mandoline, which is an instrument that has a mandolin body with a five-string banjo neck. Later in life, he occasionally played fiddle for dance tunes such as Rye Straw. At 19, Bascom enrolled at Rutherford College in 1901, where he would later teach and train for law school. When he left Rutherford, he worked for two years for the East Tennessee Nursery Company, traveling on horseback to sell fruit trees throughout Western North Carolina and the neighboring states. This job enabled him to connect with more families in remote areas and add to his vast collection of songs. In 1912, Bascom qualified for law school at Trinity College, which would eventually become Duke University. He later returned to Western North Carolina, where he would lecture on the region's music.
1: There are a lot of unprintable and unsingable uh, stanzas to the old song however that is not confused with what we boys used to do in the old days get around after a corn shucking or round some gathering and uh, possibly some of the boys repeat maybe some questionable stanzas and follow it with rise strong rise strong rise strong
0: Bascom pursued a number of other jobs over the next few decades. He practiced law, newspaper publishing, investigating draft evaders for the U.S. Department of Justice in New York, and he worked as a clerk for the North Carolina House of Representatives from 1931 to 1934. Folks at Newham have said that Bascom would cross hell on a rotten trail to learn a funny story, a song, a banjo tune, or a fiddle tune. He's been quoted as saying that he spent nights in more homes from Harper's Ferry to Iron Mountain than God. His interest in collecting folk songs came from several angles. Not only did he have affection for the value of the music and the dances, the old-time customs, and the stories of his mountain people, but he was also very aware of the cultural imagery that mountain music projected to the outside world. So, Bascom often dressed in a white, starched shirt and a black bow tie as part of an effort to counter the stereotype that this music was played by and was for hillbillies, which he despised. His mission brought him to the attention of numerous folklorists who were following the lead of the British song collector Cecil Sharp, whom Bascom never had the chance to meet. And one of them was an American song collector named Frank C. Brown of Duke University, who recorded Bascom for his first archive session, documenting 32 pieces of music onto wax cylinders for the North Carolina Folklore Collection. In 1925, Bascom accompanied Dr. Robert Gordon, the first person to be the head of the Library of Congress's Archive of Folk Song, who was on a search for ballads and songs in Western North Carolina and South Carolina. He encouraged Bascom to be thorough and systematic in his approach of collecting songs, which proved vital for him to retain more and more music. And as a result of this work, Bascom was invited to New York to record songs that he'd collected, for Columbia University in 1935. The collection included 315 pieces. Then in 1949, in a two-week marathon session, Bascom recorded, solely from memory, 330 pieces for the Library of Congress. And it's worth mentioning that up until this time, this was the largest contribution made from a single person to the archives.
1: Night when we set sail, we was
0: of bascom's major contributions to the future of folk music perhaps his greatest was both the formation and promotion of folk festivals in 1927 he advised the asheville chamber of commerce to add a program of dancing and singing to its rhododendron festival and it was so successful that the next year in 1928 the mountain dance and folk festival was born which has been cited as the first-named folk festival in the country, and it still continues to this day. He organized and performed at that festival for 37 years, until his first stroke in 1965. He also organized or helped start numerous other events throughout his life, including the first National Folk Festival, held in St. Louis in 1934, and he co-founded the Minstrel of Appalachia Festival, now in its 53rd year, held near his birthplace at Mars Hill University. Bascom became well known, and he knew many folks from his travels, and he developed a reputation. He actually wrote a letter of introduction to Ralph Peer at the Victor Talking Machine Company for Jimmy Rogers before he went to Bristol for the famous Bristol sessions. He was sought out and employed by ethnomusicologist Charles Seeger in the mid 1930s to promote the importance of the folk arts as part of the New Deal. In 1939, he presented the SoCo Gap Square Dance team at the White House for President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, his wife Eleanor, King George VI, and Queen Elizabeth of Great Britain. And in 1949, Bascom was asked to represent the United States at the first international folk festival held in Venice, Italy. And despite his accomplishments, Bascom's recordings never found commercial success. His song, Good Old Mountain Dew, which you're hearing right now, was used as the first advertising theme for the newly created Mountain Dew Soda. But when he was approached about it, he sold the rights to the song for a train ticket home. He was not willing to sacrifice his commitment to preservation for popularity. For him, it was all about the music, sharing songs and community. Bascom considered himself an archivist and never took credit for any of the songs that he played. And a collection of recordings from the 1920s to his work at Columbia, Duke, and the Library of Congress were compiled into the album, ballads, banjo tunes, and sacred songs of western North Carolina. And it was released by Smithsonian Folkways Records in
1: 1996. To the pines, to the pines, where the sun never shines.
0: Bascom spent his later years at home in South Turkey Creek near Leicester, North Carolina where he continued to entertain folks and participate in local festivals until his passing at age 91 in 1973. He was buried near his home in Leicester. Today, Bascom's life and music are cherished as one of the true musical treasures to emerge from Southern Appalachia. In his hometown, Mars Hill College hosts an annual festival named after him. And in their Appalachia room, visitors can find a scrapbook, his ballad collection, and see his instruments on display. His legacy is preserved in the National Archives, in documentaries, recordings, and festivals. Back in 1924, Bascom received an invitation to Atlanta to record for OK Records, likely because of a scout who crossed paths with him while on a field trip gathering songs. Two tracks were laid down, Jesse James, and I Wish I Was a Mole in the Ground. He wasn't paid for the recordings. In fact, he spent $50 of his own money on traveling expenses. Ironically, decades later, Harry Smith included I Wish I Was a Mole in the Ground on the anthology of American folk music in 1952, which has been widely recognized as the catalyst for the American folk revival of the 1960s. The exact origin of the song is unknown, though Bascom said, I've known it since 1901 when I heard Fred Moody, then a high school boy, sing it. Fred lives in Haywood County, North Carolina, and the footnote of the song is that the bend referred to the bend of the Pigeon River in Haywood County. I played it as a request of my mother back in 1902. She was interested in my picking the banjo, and she asked me to get the five-string banjo down and play I Wish I Was a Mole in the Ground. I went away, and she grew sick and passed away. And that was the last request she ever made of me. Here's a rendition of I Wish I Was a Mole in the Ground, first recorded by Bascom Lamar Lunsford in 1924.
1: I was a mole in the ground I wish I was a mole in the ground If I was a mole in the ground I could root that mountain down but I wish I was a mole in the ground Tippy wants a nine dollar shot Tippy wants a nine dollar shot When I come over hill with my forty dollar bill saying baby we ain't been so I don't like a railroad man I don't like a railroad man Cause a railroad man Yeah, I kill you when they can drink up your blood like wine. I wish I was a lizard in the spring. I wish I was a lizard in the spring. If I was a lizard in the spring, I could hear my darling sing. I wish I was a lizard in the spring. been around there, the rough and riding men said, now I'm going back again. Wish I was a mole in the ground. Wish I was a mole in the ground. If I was a mole in the ground, I could root that mountain down. Wish I was a mole in the ground. Wish I was a mole in the ground. Wish I was a mole. John Smith Hurt, better
0: known as Mississippi John Hurt, was born the son of freed slaves around 1892 in Teok, Mississippi. Growing up in the hill country of Avalon, Mississippi, John was the youngest of 10 children. He never recalled having a father during childhood and was brought up by his mother Mary Jane and his older siblings. Additionally, down the street was the Valley Store, a local gathering place and John remembers that the owner's sons raised him starting around nine years old. It was also around this age that John began learning guitar from a local 18-year-old named William Henry Carson, who would become his primary musical outlet. When William was asleep after occasionally staying at the Hertz house, he would sneak around for a chance to play it. The first tune that John learned from William was called Hop Joint. Eventually, once he gained some skills, he asked his mother to buy him a guitar. And though they were quite poor, she managed to get one secondhand for $1.50 that he named Black Annie, likely a Stella or a Sears brand. He said, it was some guitar. I would put it on the bed, flies would light on the strings, and they would let out just as if someone had been playing them. At the time, the dominant music in the area was an early mixture that would become pre-blues and early blues, characterized as ragtime and jug band music. Unfortunately, there are no recordings of John's teacher, William Henry Carson, though he is likely to be in a handful of people who were pioneers of guitar picking in the area, unknowingly passing the torch to the next generation who would record the songs.
1: I thought I heard say thank you, take it away
0: John left school at the age of 10 to be a farmhand, And by the time he was 13 or so, he could pick 300 pounds of cotton a day, from 7 a.m. until dusk, earning about $1.50. At 14, he was performing for local country dances and working hard on the farm still. Performing was something he considered a hobby, although he spent countless hours perfecting the unique style of fingerpicking that he developed after learning from William. John was a hardworking laborer who, for most of his life, lived without electricity, plowed fields on muleback, handmade railroad ties, which he sold for a dollar each, and picked or chopped cotton. On occasion, a medicine show would come through the area. John recalled that one of them wanted me, but I said no because I just never wanted to get away from here. Avalon was a town in which whites and blacks lived among each other, and John was content there. He didn't have the ambition to travel and perform like so many other bluesmen did.
1: You know how it is. Around 1923,
0: John started occasionally filling in as a guitar player with a local white fiddle player named Willie Narmour at local house parties, fish fries, picnics, hunting lodges, and down the street at the Valley Store. In 1928, Narmauer got a chance to record for OK Records after winning first place in a local fiddle contest, and he recommended that OK have a listen to John Hurt. They obliged, and after John played Monday Morning Blues at his home, he was invited to take part in two recording sessions, one in Memphis and one in New York City. While he was in Memphis, John recalled seeing many, many blues singers, Lonnie Johnson, Blind Lemon Jefferson, Bessie Smith, and others. He said of his first recording session, A great big hall with only three of us in it. Me, the man who we auditioned for, and the engineer. It was really something. I sat on a chair, and they pushed the microphone right up to my mouth and told me that I couldn't move after they found the right position. I had to keep my head absolutely still. Oh, I was nervous, and my neck was sore for days after. The result of these sessions was 12 songs to be released, including Spike Driver Blues and Candyman. The track sold moderately well, but due to the Great Depression, as well as OK Records refusing to market John's music as anything but a race record, the sessions ultimately were commercial failures. So, John went back to his life, tending to the land and raising a family. At one point during these years, John didn't even own a guitar and he was infrequently performing at local parties with borrowed instruments. John might have lived and died in obscurity if it hadn't been for a few blues enthusiasts and the folk music revival of the late 50s and early 60s. You see, John didn't know it, but his renditions of Frankie and Spike Trevor Blues had been added to the now iconic compilation series, The Anthology of American Folk Music, which generated considerable interest in locating him. There was a new generation of listeners and scholars dedicating themselves to locating and preserving America's musical past. None, however, knew what happened to John, and most assumed that he'd died years ago. That was up until a copy of Avalon Blues was discovered in 1963, where John sings the lines, Avalon, my hometown, always on my mind. This directly led musicologist Dick Spotswood to locate Avalon in an atlas, and he sent a man named Tom Hoskins out to see if anyone knew of John's whereabouts. When Hoskins arrived in Avalon, the first person he asked about a guitar player named Hurt directed him to a cabin, just a few mailboxes down. Their meeting was fateful, though oddly enough, John was skeptical that Hoskins was with the FBI. Now in his 70s, John had no knowledge of his old recordings making their way around. He'd been raising 14 children and was still living a life of hard labor. It took some convincing, but Hoskins eventually got John to perform a few songs and found that his musical abilities were very much intact. He persuaded John to see for himself just how many people were listening to his songs and moved to Washington, D.C there he recorded several tracks at the Library of Congress's Coolidge Auditorium and afterwards they agreed on some tours. John quickly found himself performing extensively at colleges, concert halls and coffee houses in the circuit with many other blues and folk acts who were also pulled out of retirement during this revival. When John was invited to perform at the 1963 Newport Folk Festival, he was greeted as a living legend. This launched him into the limelight and led to appearances at Carnegie Hall as well as The Tonight Show, starring Johnny Carson in 1964. There, John sat on a stool in front of the curtain and sang Nobody's Dirty Business, then said, I know you know this song, please sing it with me, and began to play You Are My Sunshine. By the end of the song, the audience was in tears, as was Johnny Carson. They gave him a standing ovation, a rare occurrence at The Tonight Show in those days.
1: You are my sunshine, my only You make me
0: happy, John would go on to record three albums for Vanguard Records, with songs that would become a defining influence on guitar players and songwriters for generations. His final recordings were done in a hotel in New York City in 1966, and they were compiled into the album Last Sessions, released in 1972. The record showed that John's voice and guitar playing was just as strong as those first OK recordings in the 20s. He was last seen in the public eye on Pete Seeger's television program Rainbow Quest, and died on November 2, 1966, of a heart attack in Grenada, Mississippi. John was inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame in 1988, and what he left behind is very much alive today. The Mississippi John Hurt Foundation, a nonprofit started by his granddaughter, preserves his legacy and provides musical and educational programs to disadvantaged youth. You can visit the home that he lived in for most of his life in Avalon, Mississippi, an endearing three-room shack that is now officially the Mississippi John Hurt Museum. You can see how John lived, filled to the brim with items that belonged to him, graciously donated by fans and locals who knew him, and you can go to the annual event held there, the Mississippi John Hurt Music Festival. Spike Driver Blues was written about John Henry, the legendary African-American folk hero who is said to be a steel-driving man, tasked with hammering a steel drill into rock to make holes for explosives and create railroad tunnels. He was strong enough to defeat a steam-powered machine, though he died with a hammer in his hand from stress on his heart. There are countless folk songs, plays, poems, and books that celebrate his strength and tell the story as a tragedy of an enduring hero. John Hurt's version is a bit different, written from the perspective of another worker who sees John Henry fall and asks someone else to take the hammer to the captain because he's going to leave. There's nothing easy about the road that he's chosen. He can be killed go to prison, or work on the rails for the rest of his days if he's caught. As the song says, Colorado's a long, long way from home, but he'll make sure that hammer doesn't kill him too. Released in 1928, here's a take on Mississippi John Hurt's Spike Driver Blues.
1: John Henry was a steel-driving boy But he went down He went down Oh, he went down Take my hammer, won't you carry it to my captain? You can tell him I'm gone. Tell him I'm gone. I tell him I'm gone. Oh. This old hammer done kill John Henry. But it won't kill me. Ain't gonna kill me. I'm gonna kill me me.
2: It's
1: a long, long Maybe to my home, honey to my home, or to my home, oh. Mm-hmm. But John Henry, he done. Lived Painting in red Shining in red John Henry's there yeah. do you carry it to my captain, tell him I'm gone, tell him I'm gone.
0: Reverend Gary Davis, also known as Blind Gary Davis, was born on April 30th, 1896 in the Piedmont section of upstate South Carolina. On a farm, he said, way down in the sticks, so far you couldn't hear a train whistle blow unless it was on a cloudy day. Of the eight children his mother had, he was the only one who survived to adulthood. As an infant, he had a condition known as sore eyes when he was three weeks old. So the doctor used some kind of ointment, and Gary thinks it was probably from a medicine show that caused ulcers to grow over them, and eventually he went blind. He remembers being poorly treated and unwanted by his mother, and his father placed him in the care of his paternal grandmother because he was constantly in trouble. When Gary was 10 years old, his father was killed in Birmingham, Alabama, and he later said that he'd been told his father was shot by the Birmingham sheriff. Gary showed an interest in music early in his life. On Saturday mornings, he would light up when the minstrel shows would arrive and travel through town with large brass bands and drum sections. He made a guitar out of a pie pan around the age of seven and taught himself to play it, as well as banjo and harmonica, and he began playing local dances for white people. He first encountered what came to be called the blues around 1910 when he heard someone picking on the street. He recalled, The first time I ever heard the guitar... I thought it was a big brass band coming through. I was a small kid, and I asked my mother what it was, and she said that was a guitar.
2: Hey, I tell you, that's no way to do. Around 1911,
0: when Gary was a teenager, his grandmother moved the family to Greenville, South Carolina, and he became a student of a local blind virtuoso named Willie Walker, who you're hearing right now. Willie taught him how to play advanced guitar, and Gary later said that he was the finest player that he ever knew. Night and day, Gary was on the streets playing guitar, and he began to attract the attention of whites in Lawrence County, who invited him to entertain them at picnics. He said, The white people sometimes would come by and sit a while to hear me play. They would give me money, feed me, give me clothes. The most I made at picnics sometimes was $15. I thought that was money. By the time Gary was 14 or 15, he was playing with a 6-8 to member string band that included Willie Walker. Around this time, Gary began to develop a very unique style of Piedmont blues, using his thumb and index finger with his right hand and multi-voicing with his left. This is a technique where any given chord is played elsewhere from the standard location on the neck, changing the order in which the notes are stacked to create a new voice for the chord. In this style, he was playing traditional gospel ragtime, blues, and he started composing original tunes, all with the mindset of hearing those traveling brass bands coming out of his guitar.
2: In 1916,
0: when Gary was 18, he was accepted to attend the South Carolina Institution for the Education of the Deaf and Blind in Spartanburg only under the condition that he was called a beneficiary pupil because his family was unable to pay the $150 tuition. He learned to read New York Point, a precursor to Braille, though he felt very constrained there, and he left after six months, later saying that he didn't like the food. He got tired of playing in string bands and splitting $50 for a night of music with five other musicians. He described the others as unambitious. We would have got somewhere if I could have got them to come on and go with me. But you see, I couldn't get him nowhere. So in the mid-1920s, Gary began to travel around South Carolina, North Carolina, and Tennessee, performing in the streets and teaching guitar to make a living. In 1931, Gary settled in Bull City, the nickname for Durham, North Carolina. At the time, The area was a major center of black culture, with a vibrant economy that supported street music. Blind musicians frequently played religious songs, which was publicly seen as more acceptable to both whites and blacks. Gary found gigs playing spiritual music at religious meetings, as well as in churches and barbershops, and playing secular music indoors and at parties. However, Gary had a profound connection with spiritual music, and grew less interested in playing blues, or anything else for that matter. Religious music provided him with a floor for his despair, as well as the means for his ambition. He also was losing his willingness to play music just for the sake of entertainment, and the difficulties throughout his life made him an even more difficult man to deal with at times. A welfare report from around this time states that he has a very aggressive manner and a religious obsession which influences his activities in an almost impractical manner. Interviews with his landlord and his friends suggests that he was having bouts with blackberry wine, falling over in chairs at 3 a.m., and sleepless nights reading the Bible.
1: I'm talking to you this morning. Yes, yeah, all right. Close up to heart.
2: Yeah.
1: I heard him say, Mother, not the ox that treads out yeah. the corn."
2: All right.
1: Would you work a horse a whole year and don't no feed him?
2: My Lord. Take up all the corn for yourself, and yeah. the horse you can't ever eat.
0: In 1933, Gary Davis was ordained as a Baptist minister in Washington, North Carolina. It was nearing the end of the Great Depression, and he had been barely scraping by, living on the streets of Durham with his student, Blind Boy Fuller, and a harmonica player named Sonny Terry. They made their money from welfare benefits, as well as busking, or playing music in the streets for small change dropped in the hat from passersby. In 1935, a storekeeper and a talent scout named J.B. Long, now the manager of Blind Boy Fuller, heard Gary Davis for the first time. He later recalled that Gary could play the guitar up and down any way in the world. J.B. invited both Gary and Fuller, as well as some other Durham musicians, to New York City for a recording session with ARC, American Record Company, which was the race music sister company belonging to Columbia Records. This was the first time Gary's sound was captured, and between July 23rd and July 26th, he recorded 15 sides, one of which was not issued, 10 religious songs, and two sets of blues. Whoa, what a city. To put this into context from hindsight, the recordings are gospel and guitar masterpieces of preservation, though at the time, they did not go over so well. Not only was Gary unfamiliar with the recording business and the process, but he was set in his ways about what music he was willing to play. He also couldn't see the red light that signaled when the disc was finished and kept on playing. Hard words and feelings were exchanged with JB, as Gary felt cheated after being paid less than the other performers, and the record company likely was unhappy that JB contracted with a bullheaded old man who only wanted to record religious music. It would be ten years before Gary would make another record. Despite a request by ARC in 1939 for him to come back to New York City for a second session. He didn't feel like he'd be paid enough, and when questioned about the guitar as a means of income, he said that he does not play the kind of music that meets the public appeal since he became Christianized. Hence, his name changes from Blind Gary Davis to the Reverend Gary Davis. When the music scene in Durham began to decline, Gary made a few trips to New York City, a place that he'd grown fond of from his time recording there. In 1943, he and his new wife Annie moved to 169th Street in Harlem, where they lived for the next 18 years. Gary became a minister at the Missionary Baptist Connect Church, and he continued busking, becoming famously known as the Harlem Street Singer. Surviving decades of trials and deep poverty was just part of life for him and his time in Harlem with Annie was no different. In 1945, Gary made his first recording in a decade with a tune called Civil War Parade, also known as United States March, emanating all the sounds of the battlefield, though it wasn't actually released until 1967 on a Smithsonian Folkways compilation album. One of the most historical moments of Gary's life occurred in 1951, when he unleashed an oral history for folklorist Elizabeth Littleton Harold, the wife of Alan Lomax, who transcribed their conversation, more than 300 pages long. This enabled Gary to open up and soften, and over the next decade, he laid down a massive body of work, making LPs for Folkways, Riverside, Stinson, Folkleric, and Prestige, as well as dozens of hours of concert and home recordings. Gary was also proficient on the banjo, piano, and harmonica. His finger-picking and multi-voice style influenced generations throughout his teaching, which would end up becoming one of the most enduring parts of his legacy that's still alive today. His lessons could last all day and into the night, and former students include Taj Mahal, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, Roy Bookbinder, Dave Van Ronk, Bob Weir, Woody Mann, and Stefan Grossman, who would become one of Gary's most important allies during the second half of his career, and who was responsible for the release of hours of amazing and intimate home recordings.
1: Reverend Davis, he said, you know, you really should go up to the Bronx and try to have guitar lessons with Reverend Davis. Here's his phone number. So I called up Reverend Davis and he said, sure, give guitar lessons. All you have to do is bring your money, honey. That was an expression he used constantly.
0: Like many artists, the folk and blues revival of the 1960s gave Gary's career a big boost. He performed at the Newport Folk Festival, at Columbia University, and at Carnegie Hall. He traveled to England with the blues and gospel caravan, along with his friend Sonny Terry. He returned to England twice before his health began to slip. Peter, Paul, and Mary recorded his version of Samson and Delilah also known as If I Had My Way, a song by Blind Willie Johnson, which Gary made popular. Baby Let Me Follow You Down was covered by Bob Dylan on his debut album for Columbia Records. And the Rolling Stones gave credit to Gary for their version of You Gotta Move, released in 1971.
2: I will do my last singing in this land child
0: somewhere in 1968, Davis bought a house in Jamaica, Queens, and he continued to perform locally. On May 5th, 1972, he suffered a heart attack while on the way to a performance in New Jersey, and he died at the hospital. He was laid to rest in Rockville Cemetery in Lynbrook, New York. On a personal note, the Reverend Gary Davis also taught an incredible musician named Andy Cohen, who's out there sharing Gary's teachings today. And he taught my mentor, Joan Crane, who passed away in January of this year. May she also rest in peace. Here's a version that Joan taught me of Slow Drag, also known as Cincinnati Flow Rag, a song which Gary attributed to learning from Blind Willie Walker. in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and raised in Sulphur Springs, Georgia, Norman L. Blake came into the world on March 10, 1938. The town was as small as it gets, nearly straddling the border of Alabama, and the name has moved over the ridge to Sulphur Springs, Alabama, as the original location has been declared a ghost town. Back then, Norman was raised in a very rural environment, without electricity, modern conveniences, or a telephone. The town church was a one-room schoolhouse, that at one point was in Ripley's Believe It or Not as the only church where the preacher stood in the state of Georgia and the congregation sat in Alabama. Norman and his family listened to old time and country music by the Carter family, Roy Acuff, and the Monroe brothers on wind-up phonographs and a battery-powered radio that his father rigged up to run off of a car battery. It was a simple life on dirt roads in a tri-state area of the South. When the railroad locomotives came running through town 22 times a day, it was the big excitement during Norman's early days. He recalled that the nearby AGS Railroad had the steam and the green and gold locomotives. It was really quite a scene. It certainly stirred the blood. Around age 11 or 12, Norman started learning guitar, imitating the style of Maybelle Carter and her famous Carter Scratch using a thumb and finger pick in the same way that the early bluegrass guitarists also played. Soon, he was playing the mandolin, dobro, and fiddle by his teens. His professional career started when he dropped out of school at age 16 to pursue music with a group called the Dixieland Drifters, much to his mother's dismay. His father was supportive of his musical pursuit, ever since he declared that it was what he wanted to do with his life. The group he joined was going up to Knoxville, Tennessee to perform on WNOX radio for the Tennessee Barn Dance Show on Saturday nights. These were some of Norman's first performances on stage. The MC of the show later told them, Boys, just remember, start off good and end good, but what you do in the middle is not as important. Just start good and end good. In the late 1950s, Norman was in his mid-twenties when he started performing with Walter Forbes and Bob Johnson known as the Lonesome Travelers. By 1959, the group started performing at the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville, where they would be invited back often at different times over the next decade. Around 1960, Norman was drafted into the Army and served as a radio operator in the Panama Canal Zone. Mandolin in hand, he started a popular bluegrass band known as the Cobb Mountaineers, voted Best Band in the Caribbean Command. A year later, while he was on leave, he recorded the album 12 Shades of Bluegrass with the Lonesome Travelers.
1: There ain't no money to buy cocaine,
0: to sugar bay. After being discharged from the Army in 1963, Norman found himself drawn to Nashville, much closer to the studio action that he was being hired for. His friend Bob Johnson, the banjo player for the Lonesome Travelers, was going over to play a session with Johnny Cash, who was in town, and he asked Norman if he'd like to go. Norman didn't have anything else to do, so he we went with him. Back in the late 50s, Norman had performed local shows in Chattanooga with Mabel Carter and her daughters, June, Anita, and Helen. And so June happened to be at this particular session, and she was the one who introduced Norman to Johnny, saying, I've been telling you about Norman Blake. He plays the guitar and the dobro and other things. Johnny turned around and, without hearing him play a note, said, if you can get a dobro, I'll use you tomorrow. I've been wanting to use the dobro with mariachi trumpets. That moment started a musical relationship that lasted over 40 years. Norman played in the house band on Johnny Cash's ABC TV show, touring and recording on and off with The Man in Black, up until his passing in 2003. The early 70s were quite busy for Norman, as if he wasn't already. In 1971, multi-instrumentalist John Hartford asked Norman, as well as the famous fiddler Vassar Clemens, to record the album Plane, blending traditional bluegrass with the spirit of the 60s and 70s feel-good renaissance. The songs are highlighted by a unique approach to lyrical content, as well as innovative interplay between these virtuosos. This album largely inspired the new grass movement that ensued. Unfortunately, the RCA record label didn't really understand Hartford's musical vision, and the album was not a big commercial success. In 1972, Norman released his critically acclaimed debut solo album, Home and Sulphur Springs, still widely considered to be one of his best, demonstrating his incomparable loose and precise right-hand guitar style, and a broad catalog of songs.
1: All the good times are past and gone.
0: That same year, Norman was performing a gig with his group at the Exit Inn in Nashville. The opening act was a folk group called Not Trace, and one member was a classically trained cellist named Nancy Short. They hit it off. Norman and Nancy began touring together in 1974 and were married a year later. Soon after his debut, he and Nancy recorded their first album, The Fields of November, with Nancy on Hillbilly Cello. Eventually, Nancy moved on from cello to instruments such as the fiddle, acoustic guitar, mandolin, bass, and accordion. Around that time, Norman was invited to take part in perhaps the most important release of country, folk, and bluegrass music of the era, 1973's Will the Circle Be Unbroken, featuring the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and several famous musicians. Norman humbly took the back seat on guitar to Doc Watson and provided dobro on the double disc album. During the 1980s, the duo recorded for Rounder Records, with Nancy playing mando cello or fiddle on various tracks. And in 1986, Nancy released her first solo album, Grand Junction. Throughout the 1990s, she provided instrumentation on several Grammy-nominated releases with Norman, including Just Give Me Something I'm Used To in 1993 and Hobo's Last Ride in 1996. In 1997, Norman and Nancy divorced, though they remarried three years later. As Norman put it, the divorce just didn't work out. In 2000, 30 years and dozens of albums later, Norman was recommended by Gillian Welch to producer T-Bone Burnett for the Oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack. She said he was just the guy to help introduce classic American old time and folk to a slightly shorter haired generation. He sang the classic, You Are My Sunshine, and then performed the instrumental version of Man of Constant Sorrow for the soundtrack. It won several Grammys, sold 8 million copies, and made enough money for him and Nancy to start their retirement from the road. He said, my wife Nancy and I were so busy out on the road for a number of years just entertaining people, you know, doing our shows. We did not fly. We drove everywhere that we went, all over the United States for 30 years or better, and we were getting pretty worn out with that. The Blakes were also called to assist in three additional T-Bone Burnett soundtracks for the films Cold Mountain, Walk the Line, and Inside Lewin Davis. In 2015, Norman released the first recording of all original material in over 30 years, titled Wood, Wire, and Words. The album was nominated for a Grammy for Best Folk Album of the Year. Of course, Nancy Blake made a musical guest appearance as well. In early 2017, Norman and Nancy released the album Brushwood, Songs and Stories, featuring 19 all-original Blake compositions. Norman has said that this may very well be his final full-length recording. Although he's known as one of the most prominent steel-string flat pickers of the last 50 years, Norman Blake's legacy is more vast than that and he's never shown much interest in slowing down. His fluid renditions of traditional ballads and classic fiddle tunes transcribed for guitar are considered pioneer for many players. His originals have become bluegrass and folk standards, such as Ginseng Sullivan, Slow Train Through Georgia, and Church Street Blues. In his long career, he's released about three dozen albums, including acclaimed duet projects with bluegrass icon Tony Rice. He played on Bill Monroe's 1981 album, Master of Bluegrass. He's recorded with Doc and Merle Watson, Earl Scruggs, Joan Baez, and Chris Christofferson. Martin, one of the world's leading guitar companies, has put out two guitar series with Norman's signature on them. What's more impressive than any of this is that he's never grown entitled about any of these accomplishments. As he put it, I don't have those kind of career aspirations. I enjoy playing music with Nancy. When we can do something good, that's an accomplishment for me. Now 82 years old, Norman has never stayed away long from his home in Silver Springs. He's toured and traveled all over, but he always comes back to North Georgia. For over 30 years, he and Nancy have lived in the same farmhouse, just down the road from where he grew up and went to grade school. The two still play music together every day, content at home, though they still do occasional concerts close by. The Blakes continue to embody the old songs and musical values, and there is no better couple to be crowned America's purveyors of old-time music. Here's a rendition of Norman Blake's Church Street Blues, written while he was in Nashville and Missing Those North Georgia Hills.
1: But I've been hanging out of town in that low down rain Watching Good Time Charlie Fenn Just driving me insane Down on Shady Shardy Street All the green lights looking red I wish I was back home on the phone In my feather bed And I got myself a rocking chair To see if I couldn't lose Them thin line, hard times hello on Church Street Blue Myself, I got myself a picker friend, read yesterday's city's loose I folded on page 21, stuck it in my shoes And I gave a nickel to the poor, my good turn for the day Folded up my little fold and I threw it far away And I got myself a rocking chair to see if I could lose Them thin down, hard times, on long church street blues I had some guitar strings Old black diamond band I String up this old Gibson box Go and join some band But I guess I'll just stay right here Just pick and sing a while I try to make a little change Give them folks a smile yeah, And I got myself a rocking chair To see if I could lose Them thin dime Hard times on Church Street Got myself a rocking chair to see if I could lose And thin down hard times on so Church Street Blue
0: William Curry Watson was born on September 23, 1979 in the racetrack town of Watkins Glen in upstate New York. Growing up, there was always music around. Willie's father was a music lover, and though he didn't play any instruments, he had a vast record collection and it was a big part of their life, whether they were at home or listening on the radio. Willie wasn't the kind of kid that was going out and playing football with the other kids. He was more likely to be painting, drawing, or creating something. And though he resonated with music early on, he didn't realize that he could actually sing until joining the school choir. I remember very specifically after a recital. People in my family said all they could hear was me, he said. I didn't think anything of it. A few years later, when I was about 10, Roy Orbison had that comeback hit, You Got It, and I loved that. I was trying to imitate Roy. People liked that and said that I sounded like him, and I kept at it from there.
2: I caught you knocking at my cellar door.
0: Willie had a guitar and he was really into Neil Young, sitting up in his room singing songs in Neil's famous high register. He found that he could imitate most singers that he'd heard on the radio and on records. He listened to everything from Michael Jackson to Bob Dylan, who's still one of his idols today. By the early 90s, Like most introspective kids, Willie was really into Nirvana. When the now-famous MTV Unplugged session came out, and Kurt Cobain briefly mentioned Lead Belly, Willie remembered that his father had a Lead Belly record down in the basement. He went downstairs and put it on, and specifically remembers that moment being the first time that he ever heard a man singing like that, or a record having that specific, old, spiritual quality to it. He was blown away and he was only 12 years old. During the next few decades, this moment would be essential as Willie headed in the direction of the musical past that he was destined to play. In seventh grade, Willie began learning claw hammer banjo, inspired by a local group called the Horseflies headed by Richie Stearns and Judy Hyman, who was mixing old-time fiddle music with 1980s pop. While Richie played claw hammer banjo, Judy played the fiddle and would dance around the stage to the drum beat, head-banging with her eyes rolling in the back of her head. Willie thought it was the coolest thing that he'd ever seen. At its core, it was fun dance music, and it moved him in a big way. That was his introduction to old-time music in Ithaca. For 40 years... Ithaca had been nationally recognized as a center for old time music. By the time Willie got to high school, both Ithaca and its neighboring Tompkins County were hosting plenty of old time and fiddle music events. Some were organized by Richie Stearns and a group called Donna the Buffalo, who started the local Finger Lakes Grassroots Festival in the summer of 1991. Willie went to that festival each year, watching some of the best claw hammer banjo and fiddle players firsthand. Soon, he was learning more and more at the weekly old-time jams, and he found that singing in that high, lonesome mountain sound fit the Neil Young register that he'd been into for years. Only this style had more volume to it. At 16, Willie dropped out of high school, along with his friend Ben Gold, so that they could pursue music. They formed a band called The Funnest Game, which, just like the Horseflies, had claw hammer banjo, electric guitar, congas, and drums. Their style of electric old time was earning respect among local musicians, and they gradually gained a following in the southern region of the state, appearing annually at the Finger Lakes Grassroots Festival. All of these influences created an authenticity that Willie started forming with traditional and old time music. He was unearthing Smithsonian Folkways albums, including the groundbreaking Harry Smith compilation, Anthology of American Folk Music. As he put it, I was just exposed to all kinds of stuff. It could have been anything, and I would still be playing music because I could sing like anybody or anything that I wanted to. That's why I feel so fortunate. A lot of people don't have that, and I never take it for granted. I found a direction in life at a very young age. In 1998, at age 19, Willie met Ketch Secker, a fiddler from Virginia who arrived in Ithaca to be with his girlfriend, who was attending Cornell, and she had recently broken up with him though many, many years later, they would marry. Willie and Ketch got to talking about starting a band with Ben Gold, Ketch's best friend from Virginia, Chris Critter Fuquay, and a wandering folk singer that Ketch met while picking blueberries in Maine, named Kevin Hayes. Willie and Gold quit the funnest game and took a chance. These boys were all in a hard place. They didn't have much between them. Just a few hundred dollars, a large brown van, a rusty old black Volvo with flame decals, and a dog. Their plan was to drive across the continent and busk in the streets, performing for gas, money, and food. The boys picked grapes for two weeks straight to make their seed money. They gathered in Critter's bedroom to play music together for the first time and decided to record it. What came out was ten songs, an album that they titled Transmission, in the form of a cassette that they could sell on the road. That was Old Crow Medicine Show's first record. There were definitely a few Mohawks floating around back then, Willie said. We had a bit of a rough edge. We were hipster kids who played banjos. The group left Ithaca for their transmission tour in October 1998, busking west across Canada. They never went to bed hungry, and three months later, they circled back east. In the spring of 1999, they moved into a farmhouse on Beach Mountain near Boone, North Carolina. They were embraced by the Appalachian community, and their repertoire of old-time songs grew as they played with local musicians. One day while the group was busking in Boone, a young girl walked by and said, Hey, my dad plays this kind of music. You guys sound great. I'm gonna go get my dad. Her father was Doc Watson. They were playing on Doc's old corner on King Street, where he'd started playing in the 50s. Doc said, Boys, that was some of the most authentic old-time music I've heard in a long while. You almost got me crying. Doc invited the boys to participate at Merle Fest, a music festival that he founded in 1998 in memory of his son, Eddie Merle Watson, and as a fundraiser for Wilkes Community College, celebrating traditional plus music. They had one short set at Merle Fest, and they stayed over three days for the free food. They decided to busk by a fountain at the center of campus and began playing. Soon 10, then 30, then 100 people would flock, smiling and dancing to this loose and fast old-time music. In the crowd was Sally Williams, the event manager at the Grand Ole Opry. Soon after, she invited them to perform weekly Friday night parties on the side stage at the old Opry Plaza, in between the main acts. They would make the three-hour drive weekly in an old Cadillac limousine that they'd bought in North Carolina and used the opportunity to groom themselves and shower in the backstage locker rooms.
1: In 2000,
0: the band moved to Nashville. A few weeks after arriving, they landed a guest spot at the Grand Ole Opry, which had just moved back to its original location at the Ryman Auditorium, considered the mother church of country music. They performed a jug band tune called... Tear it down, and received a standing ovation by the whole house before the song even finished. They were later encouraged to do an encore by Marty Stewart, the president of the Grand Ole Opry, which is a rather big deal. Shortly after, they went on tour with the Bluegrass League group, the Del McCurry Band. Then Willie and the Boys started working on their first studio album, with Dave Rawlings, the musical partner of Gillian Welch, as their producer. Old Crow Medicine Show would go on to sell millions of records and receive four Grammy nominations with two wins. In
2: 2011,
0: Willie announced that he was leaving Old Crow. Despite what was said by the media, he stated that it wasn't to pursue a solo career. The band had monumental success and a grueling tour schedule that was selling out venues left and right. He didn't want to leave, but it was a trying time being in that band for so many years. And as a new parent, all things pointed to a need for change. When Willie left, he didn't know what to do next. He knew he had to do something and that he couldn't really wait too long. Otherwise, he thought people might forget who he was. He started writing songs again, but he didn't like what he was putting on paper because he didn't feel like they were as good as some of his older songs. He thought about putting together some kind of band. He decided to get out there and try some solo shows with the material that he was writing and mix in a few old traditional songs. People seemed to enjoy the sets, though after about three or four shows, he felt like he was struggling to be both comfortable and entertaining on stage, and was still put off about his writing. Around this time, Willie essentially stopped writing songs, coming to terms that he wasn't going to be the kind of songwriter that he always wanted to be. Despite that, he felt really good playing old folk songs and the crowd seemed to enjoy them more as well. He thought these were great songs that people should be hearing. And he had an epiphany of sorts, that the kind of music that he really wanted to play was already created, and the dusty path that he was on began to clear. Between 2012 and 2013, Willie began performing again, slowly. He was invited by folk siblings Sean and Sarah Watkins, formerly of Nickel Creek, to join them on the Kayamo Cruise, a singer-songwriter, folk, and roots festival on a ship that goes around the Bahamas. Sean took the liberty of putting Willie on the performance schedule without him knowing, giving him a nudge. Soon after, Willie was appearing in venues in and around Venice Beach, California, making appearances with the John C. Riley Band and John Prime, and opening for the Punch Brothers, Sarah Drose, and Dawes. Willie's friend Dave Rawlings was helping him a lot through this transition, and after hearing what he was doing solo, he said that they should cut a record. Willie's debut solo album, Folk Singer Volume 1, was released on May 6, 2014 on Gillian's label, Acony Records. It features 10 stripped-down songs of just Willie and his instruments, from folk standards to obscure gems, as Willie describes them. Rolling Stone named it one of the 26 albums of 2014 you probably didn't, but really should hear, stating, Watson's voice carries the weight of generations past, but on Folk Singer, it's still appropriate for the one we live in right now.
2: Take this hammer, carry
0: to the Released on September 15, 2017, Folk Singer Volume 2 was a continuation of Old Songs from Volume 1, also produced by Rawlings, and featured collaborations with Gillian and the Fairfield Four a gospel group that's been around for nearly a century. Willie said of the album, You take the person who picks up my record and has never heard anything like this. There's people that think I wrote these songs, and at the end of the day, what matters is that music is moving somebody and doing something for them in their lives. It would be pretty cool to be that person and for all of this to be brand new. It took him a while to find perspective on leaving Old Crow, and he doesn't have any regrets. I certainly thought I was important, and I was certainly trying to do the next important thing, and I was pretty wrapped up in it, he said. But I'm so glad where I am now. It's good to just remain human and remain humble and grateful for what you have. Like everyone, Willie has his guilty pleasures. He admits that he loves Taylor Swift songs, not because of the lyrics, but because he can't deny the feeling of a good pop song. This may come as no surprise, since he released a stripped-down, finger-picking, and harmonica version of Dancing On My Own originally by Swedish pop star Robin, in May of this year. He's also got other interests. He runs a successful one-man operation called Willie Watson Manufacturing Co., creating 100% handmade, vintage-inspired, custom denim clothing. And in 2018, Willie made his acting debut as The Kid in The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, directed and written by the Coen Brothers. He performs the song... When a Cowboy Trades His Spurs for Wings on the film soundtrack, written by Dave and Gillian, which you're hearing right now. Willie is a key component of the folk revival that's happening today. Critics have compared him to legends like Bob Dylan and Pete Seeger, but Willie isn't buying it. He says, I just try to take songs I can relate to and that I can sing with urgency, that I can feel, and I'm just happy if people dig it. On his first album, Folk Singer Volume 1, is Willie's rendition of a song that was written by Richard Rabbit Brown called James Alley Blues and recorded in 1927 for Victor Records. It was added to Harry Smith's Anthology of American Folk Music and surprisingly is the only track on the anthology that includes the location of the recording in the notes. It has a dark yet somewhat humorous approach to common concerns in blues lyrics, complaining that women are Mean Mistreaters. Here's my take on James Alley Blues, influenced by Willie Watson.
1: Times are now ain't like they used to be Times ain't up, nothing like they used to be Hey, I'm telling you on the truth and you ought to take it from me I done seen better days, but I'm putting up with these I done seen better days, but I'm putting up with these I had a lot better time with those girls and I knew them I was born in the country She thinks I'm easy to rule And I was born in the country She thinks I'm easy to rule She tried to hitch me to a wagon And drive me like a mule You know I bought the groceries And I paid the rent I bought the groceries I paid the rent Try to make me wash your clothes but you got good common sense Said if you don't want me why don't you tell me so You know if you don't want me why don't you tell me so I ain't like a man that ain't got nowhere to go sugar you want salt for salt i give you sugar for sugar you get the salt for salt if you can't get along with that when it's your own damn fault how do you want me to love you when you keep on treating me mean how do you want me to love you when you keep on treating me mean You're my daily thoughts And my nightly dreams Sometimes I think You're just too sweet to die Sometimes I think You're just too sweet to die Other times I think That you ought to be
2: some people say a man is made out of mud. A poor man's made out of muscle and blood, muscle and blood, and skin and bones. A mind that's weak and a back that's strong. You load
0: that's a wrap for episode two. If you're enjoying what you hear, this is a one-man operation, and the more people listening the better. So please do share on Facebook and Instagram at American Songcatcher. Today's shining Light goes out to Pickin' for Progress with Joe Troop of the Grammy nominated Latin Grass Ensemble, Che Appalache. This series is dedicated to raising and illuminating the voices of North Carolina citizens who will be directly impacted by both the local and federal elections this November. To watch these eye-opening episodes, find at Cheapalache on Instagram. That's C-H-E dot A-P-A-L-A-C-H-E. And if you live in North Carolina, head to vote nc.org to find out more information on voting. And wherever you live, make sure you register to vote. This episode was brought to you by the community of supporters on Patreon. If you're interested in becoming a direct supporter of the show, please visit patreon.com slash American Songcatcher would love to have you on board to fund this independent program. Huge thanks goes out to the Smithsonian Folkways for all of their crucial work in preserving the legacy of these artists and these songs, the Library of Congress's complete national recording registry, archive.org and all of the effort that they put into transferring cultural artifacts into digital form, and all of the website resources that were used in this episode, which are hyperlinked in the description. The intro song is Payday by Mississippi John Hurt from the Today album. The outro song is 16 Tons, performed by Tennessee Ernie Ford, originally written by Merle Travis. This episode was produced, researched, recorded, and distributed by myself, Nicholas Edward Williams. In the words of Mississippi John Hurt, the blues ain't nothing but a good woman on your mind. Here's to the songs of old. May they live on forever. See you next time on American Songcatcher.